You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Mark Becton on Sunday, September 5th, 2021 at Redemption Health Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Hebrews chapter 7. In just a moment, we'll look at verses 26 and 27. If you were not here last Sunday... Let me just give you the ramp up to this Sunday and next. In our spiritual life, uh, we can have an accumulation of glitches. Something I learned from my router. Over time, so many glitches accumulated, it just didn't function as well as it was originally planned. So we just simply unplugged and restarted it. And it's remarkable how all the technical terms I don't know started working again. And so for the next three Sundays, I just wanted us to unplug from everything and replug in to how amazing the Father is in our salvation. And last Sunday, we looked at His holiness. And this Sunday, it's a natural bridge to go from His holiness then to His grace. And so since we'll be talking about God's grace to us in our salvation... I already am going against something that's going to be challenging. We've heard the word grace a lot. And if you're like me and grew up in church, you heard it in songs, you heard it in sermons. Uh, You may even heard around the table, let's say, grace. If you didn't grow up in a church conversation or church background, you still heard the term grace a lot because everybody is longing for some expression of grace. So we come to it with our own picture in our mind of what grace is. But for me, I need to come at this differently. Since I was so familiar with it, I needed to change chairs. Uh, In our den downstairs, I have my beloved recliner that's angled beautifully at the television. But if I want to see this familiar room differently and enjoy it in ways I haven't seen it, I go to the love seat. I go to a different chair in the room. And suddenly there are things that I I have not seen or things that have a different angle that suddenly were always there. But grab me. And the same is true now with this beautiful term grace. Candidly, in my lifetime, I, I saw grace more from the vantage point of the recipient I knew what grace meant to me as the one who needed it. But through looking at Scripture, those beautiful 18 months of just saying, Father, show me the beauty of salvation from your picture, from changing chairs and looking at it from the viewpoint of the giver of grace. It's mind-blowing. Some of the things that we'll look at today are passages I was familiar with much of my life. But it was like what my mom did for my brother and me growing up. During a summer where she wanted us to be less in her feet and more involved in other things, she gave us numbered paintings. Anybody familiar with those? Yeah, you have all the lines and all the numbers. And as a child, I could see what that might be, but it wasn't until I put the colors to it that it popped. 
So as we look at grace from a different chair, from the viewpoint of the giver, of God extending his grace to us instead of us needing it, my prayer is that it leads to your worship just as it did mine. And this ties in with last Sunday, and which is why we're looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Look at it more slowly as we go through it. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy. And we talked about Christ and his holiness, the Father's holiness, all last week. Also innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. If you remember last time, we looked at the passage that said, Christ is the fulfillment of all that were the copies in the Old Testament. And Hebrews talks about Christ being our high priest. What we see in the high priest of the Old Testament was a copy pointing to us to Christ. Didn't have to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Let me share with you the, the triggering moment that I didn't want to go through but did go through that made me change chairs looking at grace not just from the recipient but from the giver's view. It was through a relationship that had gone south. A long relationship that had soured. And it was hard because I had, I had deeply invested my life in that relationship. And what I'm about to describe, I have a feeling I'll be describing something in your life too. It happens to, to, to many of us where those that you have loved... And it could be a dear friend, a, a co-worker, it could be a spouse, it could be a parent, it could be a child. But you really have loved and sacrificed for. And then they start doing things that just take for granted all that you have done. And now you feel like all that you invested was a, a one-sided love. A one-sided relationship. And beyond that. They also begin shooting barbs back to you. And maybe not directly, but indirectly to other people through you. And, and you're just consumed by this. Well, I was experiencing that in a relationship and began to cry out to God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. And I began to describe the details of how I felt it was one-sided. How I felt they didn't appreciate the sacrifice that I had put into this. And you'll find in John chapters 14 through 16, the role of the Spirit of Christ within us as believers is to bring Scripture to mind. So while I'm praying this, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 comes to mind. If you're not familiar with it, it will be on the screen. Where it says, but God shows His love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And I saw the plural we and could not escape me. Now, granted, in the first century, I wasn't there in the streets to clear my throat on Christ, as some did. 
I wasn't there to hurl insults at him, as some did. It wasn't me. I wasn't the one who opened his back with the whip or nailed his hands down. That wasn't me. However, I'm still in the we. And I knew that. And that's where it became triggering. Where suddenly I shifted chairs. I was no longer the victim needing solace. I saw myself as the perpetrator of the one who continues to give me grace. I am the individual in the relationship who is not returning the love to the degree Christ is to me. I am the one in the relationship who is not faithful to speak up for Christ. I remain silent or even in my silence will sin. And suddenly I just became broken over his grace to me that I hadn't seen. And so I began to to see it in the New Testament. But what was beautiful, as we saw last Sunday, is all of this was really portrayed for us first in the Old Testament. So what I want us to do is realizing the grace we receive from Christ was already portrayed in the Old Testament, which actually describes the grace of God. And the beauty and the scope of his grace. So we'll be looking at a variety of Old Testament passages. And in doing so, we're going to see the grace that Jesus shows us by his humility to leave heaven. By his sacrifice for us. By him choosing us and then covering us. All of that shows you the beauty of his grace. So let's get started. First, I want us to look at his grace to humble himself and ask you to find Leviticus chapter 16. As you're taking your Bibles and looking for Leviticus chapter 16, let me give you the backdrop. This is going to be the day of atonement. This is when the high priest then approaches God on behalf of the people in order to ask the Father's forgiveness for their sins. But to see the beauty of this, you've got to, you don't go there, still be looking for Leviticus 16. Let me talk about Exodus 28. This is where God identifies Aaron and his lineage to be the priests and specifically Aaron to be the high priest. And in doing so, he said, this is the the wardrobe that I want the high priest to wear. And he begins to outline what it will look like, how it is to be created, the the inside clothing, the outside clothing, uh, the the, the ephod, the hat, and all that is there when you, you look at it. In verse 2 of chapter 28, it says the father purposed this so that the high priest could be seen as separate from the people with glory and beauty. But now in Leviticus chapter 16, this picture, and the best way I can describe it in Exodus 28 is of a wardrobe of royalty is put aside. You're in Leviticus chapter 16. Look at verses 3 and 4. But in this way, Aaron shall come to the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen, white coat, holy linen coat, and shall have the linen undergarments on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. 
So prior to that day of atonement where he steps before God for the sins of the people, he is separated unto God before the people in glory and beauty with what he's wearing. But on the day to approach God, he's to put on that humble linen in approaching him. When, when you see this, take your Bibles quickly and just go to the New Testament now to Philippians chapter 2. In just a moment, we'll look at verses 5 through 11. Well, when I saw this in, in the Old Testament, I then saw Christ. When you have Hebrews, which calls him our high priest in heaven, and then you have Revelation in chapter 5, as we have already seen. But if you also look at chapter 1, when he first appears to the apostle John, and you see how amazing he is in his heavenly appearance, you can't help but take in the royalty of Christ in his holiness in heaven. It's mesmerizing. It's breathtaking. But now when you realize what Christ did to express God's grace to us, to show the grace of God to us, you find this in chapter 2 of Philippians where Christ, to approach God on our behalf for our sins, changes clothes. Look what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because of his humbleness in his grace to us. And I, I put this together and can't help but feel a little sick of what I was praying before this is revealed. Because all I really wanted was to be appreciated by the individual in the relationship for the sacrifices I had made for them and the way that I had loved them. That's all I wanted. And yet Christ shows me what he did for me. Which meant it led to a confession. And if you took my praying with David class in Equip, you understand that I feel there's a value in sometimes writing out your prayers to the Father. It helps you really articulate your heart well. And in this moment, I felt like I had to. So I journaled this to him. I said, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for frequently overlooking all you laid aside to save me. I'm also sorry for not acknowledging your patience with me. I know I clamor on questioning you out of ignorance to your will. And at times I even resist you because of my own arrogant territorialism. I want my way. 
Because I feel safe and in control when wrapped secure in my predictable and manageable plans and routines. Jesus, I'm also sorry when I don't speak up on your behalf. Forgive me when I don't regularly boast to others about your love and grace. I do see it in the heavenly glory and beauty you gave up. When coming to earth, I also see it in the painful way you sacrificed yourself for me. I know I deserve none of all you endured from me and for me. I know I've talked about your grace for years, but now seeing afresh my role as the perpetrator, not the victim. Thank you for all you carried so that I could know you. Thank you for purposing my wounds. They help me see the deeper beauty of your grace. I'm simply reading that journal not so that you can say, wow, wasn't that pretty? I really am hoping that it is a prompter for you to have your own time. To have that type of conversation with the Father, worshiping Him and praising Him for the grace He perpetually extends to you. Even though you might rightly feel that you're the victim in the matter. So in Christ then He shows more. The grace not only to humble Himself but to sacrifice Himself. Go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Our original text, we'll go through it one more time. While you're finding that, let's be reminded that multiple times in the book of Hebrews, Christ is identified as our high priest, but he is explained beautifully as in what the Lord requires of the high priests in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, you know, changed clothes, but then he would have to come with a bull a ram, and two goats. He would sacrifice the bull and the ram for his own sins, acknowledging that he among the people has sinned too. So before he can approach God for the people, he has to be made made clean, and so his sacrifice is of the bull and the ram. The people, they require the two goats. So you find this in Hebrews chapter 7 and translating and helping you bridge to see Christ this way. And I want you to, to look at this. I'm kind of giving you the spoiler alert. Christ does not have to have the ram and the bull for him. Because he forever has been, forever will be sinless and holy. He'll just have to have the two goats. Look what it says again. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And he has no need like the high priest to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered himself. Now this last portion is the beauty to you and me and the grace we receive of him and displays his grace in the way that he shows it to us. Christ in this actually also becomes the two goats. He's not only the high priest, 
He is the two goats. In the Old Testament, the two goats had these purposes. The high priest would then lay hands on one of the goats, and the goat was to be sacrificed, and that sacrifice was for the sins of the people. The other goat, the hands on it, was called the scapegoat. And that goat was sent off into the wilderness out of the sight of the people. And this is a beautiful picture out of God's grace for the people that he gave to them. Do you understand that this one goat is being sacrificed for your sins? And to let you know that that sacrifice has satisfied my wrath, that the debt has been paid, I'm taking this other goat and taking it out of your sight, letting you know that I no longer see the ledger of your sins. What a beautiful kindness of God and grace, which takes us back to Christ. In Christ, he is the sacrifice for our sin. His blood pays the price for it, so the Father is satisfied. But then you have his resurrection 40 days later. You have his ascension. He ascends out of our sight. And Hebrews tells us he sits at the right hand of God the Father. His work is finished, which is all next Sunday. His work is finished. And we rest in the grace of knowing it's all paid. And it's out of sight of the Father. What a kindness from God. If there was a passage in Scripture that was really picturesque for me in this, it's Romans chapter 6, verse 23. It'll be on the screen if you're not familiar with it. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ did it all. As our two coats. And I, I wish I'd had this fuller, beautiful picture when I, when I first started as a pastor. My first full-time church as a pastor, I was started at 23. And I was the only pastor on staff. And the deacons of the church were all older than me. Which meant, even to this day, I thank the Father for them and their kindness because they likely invested more in me than I did in them. And one of them was particularly kind. He was just soft-spoken, extremely gentle. And he was always doing something around the church. And if you caught him doing it, he was almost embarrassed by it and was a little flustered that you found him doing something. And one afternoon, I found him painting outside the church. And it was uncharacteristic. I thanked him for it. He said, can we talk? Sure. So he stepped into the church. He then told me, he said, Mark, it's still hard for me to accept that God would forgive me of my sins. And he likely has been a follower longer than I've been alive. And he's telling me I just can't really take that in. And I did all I could to say how, how complete God's forgiveness is for him. But I, I saw he continued to struggle with it. And I learned later in life of something called scrupulosity. It, it affects some of us in our fallen nature. Where there is a spiritual OCD where everything just has to be put in its place. Where we finally have everything in our mind right with God. Well, if you know that you're fallen by nature, that will never happen. Can, can you imagine the, the foreboding feeling that you're, you're, you're never feeling the beauty and the fullness of his forgiveness? And I wish I had had this understanding here because it would be that, that aid that I would have given to him. 
that the Father even purposed this picture out of His grace, knowing this would be possibly part of your fallen nature so that you would have to rehearse it to yourself. No, Christ's sacrifice was enough. And He has sent it out of His sight. And even though I may not feel it, maybe everything's not in order, but I know because of Christ and the grace of God, I have His acceptance. And you rehearse it, and you rehearse it, and you rehearse it. Not only that, but also it's the beauty of His grace to even choose us to experience that. This was part of the 18 months of just wanting to see the beauty of God's activity and salvation that I I wrestled with. And I I may be uh, speaking to others who've come at it from the way that I had most of my life. Most of my life, I I really felt if I, I knew the truth that I could not have salvation outside of Christ. But I also was proud of myself that at a young age, I figured that out. And at a young age, I had enough humility to swallow my pride and and be able to say, I need Jesus. And so, in some respects, by having that verbiage and that mindset, even though Christ did all the sacrifice, I'm a partial hero in this story, too. Because I figured it out and I swallowed my pride. Yet when I got into the New Testament, particularly in Ephesians chapter 1, where it talks about him choosing us before the foundation of the world, at first that rocked my world. And then I began to look at the other passages, which lets me know that he makes known to me my state before him. He's the one who pierces me knowing this. And even in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he's the one who graces me with the faith to repent and believe. So the whole salvation experience has nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. And now suddenly I'm in awe of that type of grace. And I saw it in the Old Testament. And in fact, I said, well, why didn't I see this before? Because if, if the Old Testament if, is, a, is a copy of what we're going to see in Christ in the New Testament, why didn't I see that Israel in the Old Testament is called God's chosen people? It's been there this whole time. And I, I was blown away by it. So I said, okay, Father, then show me your grace in the Old Testament so that I can understand what your grace was like then. How's it expressed then? So again, you you know me, I love word studies. And I got into the Greek of the New Testament, and it's the word charis. His grace means uh, unmerited favor. It's what he extends that we don't deserve. But I began to look in word studies of the Old Testament and not finding this English word grace. I thought, where where is that? So I I started going deeper into it. I said, okay, let's cheat. I don't mean this badly. I just mean it's the way I did a workaround because I don't know Hebrew. Hebrew did not work with my brain. Hebrew goes left from right. I go right from left. I go left from right. Yeah. And Hebrew doesn't even have vowels. So I, I said, no. So I did a workaround. And I went to what's called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew. And I know that in the Greek, charis is the word for grace. So I was looking for ways that this word charis appears in the Septuagint and what Hebrew word it is used for. And there's two of them. One is hen, H-E-N. The other is hesed, 
H-E-S-E-D. And when those words appear in English translations, the Old Testament, most of the time it's in the beautiful word favor. Favor. And that's when I saw it. So many times you find that God bestowed his favor on Noah, God bestowed his favor on Moses and on Samuel. He graced them. And even last week, we talked about Moses in Exodus 33, meeting uh, Mount Sinai. And the Lord says, okay, before I pass by, let me tell you this. And it's verse 19. I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And that word for gracious is a Hebrew word that means to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior. To show favor. What a kindness of a holy God. Which is then why Esther came to mind. Several months ago, Robert led us through a grand study of the book of Esther. But let me just give you a highlight and how it grabbed me. In, in essence, you know that Esther uh, was part of a storyline that involved King Ahasuerus. I worked hard to say that right. <laughs> King Ahasuerus was looking for a queen. And there were candidates brought from the land. And they were all given the same uh, makeover by the king's beautician. Even though Esther was among the candidates, even though Esther had the makeover, Esther didn't become queen because of anything she did. She became queen because Ahasuerus, the king, chose her, had favor on her. Now, even in this, you'll find that Queen Esther realizes that even to be in the presence of Hazuerus requires the king's favor. So when she learns that the Jewish people of which she's a part are a plot of a mass genocide, she knows that if she goes to the king without his favor, him extending the scepter, extending his hand of favor, she could be killed on the spot. But she goes and graciously he extends his favor so she can enter his presence. And now all of this is just swirling and beginning to cause me to be in awe. That God who is Father is also the creator of the universe. All powerful, all knowing, ever present. By his favor extended his hand to me to say you're mine. Why wouldn't I be in awe of such a kind and gracious king? He chose me. But more than that, friends, he also covers us with his grace. Now, he could have easily just said, okay, I'll I'll take you as mine and we'll just let bygones be bygones and move forward. But you'll never really understand the extent of my grace and the love within my grace without me displaying it through covering you. So take your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 11. 
Going back again to the Old Testament practice in Leviticus 16, where the high priest has changed clothes to approach God on behalf of the people. He has sacrificed the the bull and the ram for himself. He has the two goats for the people. He's gone through that appropriately. But it's it's an answer the Father is giving, knowing it's a question the people may be asking as to why does this goat need to be sacrificed? Why is that important to you? So look at Leviticus 17 verse 11. It says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives. Since it is in the lifeblood that makes atonement. Now, the word atonement in the Hebrew literally means to cover. It is a covering. We'll get into that in just a moment. But this really ties into what we learned for the whole picture here in Christ in Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it is in the blood that there is life, and there must be a sacrifice of a life to pay the debt for a sin. Because in the blood, there is the covering, the atonement. Which means in a New Testament picture, Christ is our covering. He is our atonement before God. So when He looks at us, even though after He has adopted me and made me His own, I still have a fallen nature. He is conforming to Christ, which means daily, I am still messing up. And yet when He looks at me with His grace, seeing all my mess-ups, He sees Christ. What grace. With that in mind, I said, okay, there are two pictures that just really punched this for me in the Old Testament. One is what takes place in Exodus chapter 12. The other occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Exodus chapter 12 is the last of the ten plagues. You might remember this. What happens every Easter with Charlton Heston and the Exodus, all right? The last plague is that of the firstborn of all of Egypt. However, God gives instruction to his chosen people to take the blood of a lamb and spread it on the doorposts so that on that evening when the death angel passes over, when the wrath of God hits Egypt, It will pass over when it sees the blood. And from that night forward, God instituted this for the people of Israel to do annually, and they call it Passover. Passover. Now, from what took place in Exodus at that first moment, go 1,300 Passovers into the future. And you're going to have John the Baptist in John chapter 1 on two occasions pointing to Christ and say, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In Christ, God intended Him to be our Passover Lamb. So that by His blood, the Father looks at us, passes over His wrath that we would deserve and does so because His grace is so amazing. But to make it more personal to me, the other picture that came to mind is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 
It's a less familiar account of Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth is actually tied to David and Goliath. Let me just show you how. You you know the account. You're familiar with that. David slays Goliath. Now, at that moment, King Saul is in charge. King Saul has a son named Jonathan. After David has killed Goliath, Jonathan and David become closest of friends. They love each other like brothers. In fact, what they will do is they will create what's called a blood covenant. They will cut their palms. They will grasp hands and make a covenant to each other. And the covenant is this. If anything happens to one or the other, we will take care of the other's family. That was the blood covenant. During a battle, it is Saul and his son Jonathan that are killed. And some years later, David will become king. And during that reign as king, it suddenly comes to mind, hey, I had a blood covenant with Jonathan. And he begins to ask, are there any of his relatives remaining? And that's when they learned, what we learned, particularly what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 4, when Saul, his grandfather, when Jonathan, his dad, were killed in battle, it was the caretaker for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who began to run with him. Because the practice of the kings is, if I win this battle, I wipe out all the heirs of the old king. So she runs with him and falls, falling on top of him, and it crushes his legs so that young Mephibosheth grows up crippled. Now as a young man, he is still hiding from King David because he knows the practice of the kings. It is David the king who actually has to seek him. Look for him. Go after him. And that's when they find Mephibosheth and bring him in. Now, just stay with me and look at the beauty of this. This is the grace of the king. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, as Mephibosheth is likely shaking before David, David tells him in verse 7, I will show kindness to you, Mephibosheth, for Jonathan's sake. For the sake of the one I made the blood covenant with. He tells him in verses 7, 10, 11, and 15, I want you to come and eat at my table. You can now be in my presence at all times. You can fellowship with me. Then in verse 9, everything that belonged to your grandfather King Saul is yours again. You now have the fortunes that were yours as royalty. They are the fortunes of a king. And in verse 11, And Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of his sons. He got to put his crippled legs under the king's table. Now, what does grace look like? How amazing is that, knowing that actually from the king's view, that is what has been disposed of, given to you and me. As his own. Um, And if that's not wow enough, let me give it in a different context. Having pastored here in Richmond for 21 years now, I have the privilege to know different ministries that take place in the city. There's a ministry that 
loves on women who are being exploited or trafficked. Not just outside the city. Actually, it's predominantly within our own city. And on one occasion, the ministry was contacted by the courts because they had a a woman who had been frequented there. And they said, we have tried everything to help her and we just can't. Maybe you can. But they had to wait for her to come out of the hospital. And knowing that we have small children with us, I'm just going to make this as delicate as I can. She was in the hospital because she had been cut with a knife by her employer. So once she got out of the hospital, uh, a couple of the women involved in this ministry met with her. And they just simply said, hey, we'll be happy to meet with you uh, weekly, monthly at your discretion. But all we're going to do is hear what's going on in your life, pray for you, and, and, and read scripture together. She agreed to that. But one of their practices is always to pray. So they they prayed with her. And in praying with her, she did something unique. This this, this woman, I guess, had never been prayed for like that. And she stopped in mid-prayer. She wiped the tears from her eyes and the snot from her nose and, and began saying, I'm tough, I'm tough, I'm tough, as if she had to convince herself again. And then she reached for their hands and said, okay, go on. Now, several weeks later, another ministry in Richmond uh, annually looks to take uh, women like her and love on them. Uh, They have an opportunity to give them clothes, uh, to give them a makeover, and then they even have a fashion show, not not for competition, just to affirm them. So this this, this woman I'm talking about came to that, was invited to that, and uh, the, the mentors who are part of her life were there. And she came to them with armloads of clothes just beaming because she was being loved on this way. And then she saw the runway and said, I'm not doing that. And uh, the one who she had met with first who knew her well said, you don't have to. But also knowing the gospel was going to be explained that night said, but just, just stay with us, sit with us. So she did. And as the runway and the people walked in and the applauding took place and the encouragement... It wasn't long they saw this woman who had come, who said, I wouldn't do that, is on the runway. But it doesn't take her any time from point A to point B to get off. And then afterwards came back to the table and came to this one. And the one she said, I wouldn't do it to, said, I thought you weren't going to do that. She said, I wasn't. But I saw at the end they were giving roses away. And I wanted one to give to you. She doesn't even know the beauty and the fullness of God's grace yet. But she has been a recipient of it from others, a touch point of it from others, where at least she knows the the joy of doing that with others. And yet it will be a few months later that the Father will open her eyes and she will be able to see His grace and be adopted as His own. And what was remarkable is the first person on her mind was her boyfriend employer who was in the hospital facing a fatal surgery possibly. And she got with one of the mentors who had been walking with her and said, could somebody go talk to him and explain Jesus to him? So uh, what was remarkable, and only the father could put this together, is one of the women was as old as this woman. And I, I never told you the backstory. She's 60 years old. She has had a long life contrary to what you and I would know and yet she's saying would somebody talk to my boyfriend 
The lady is about her age, who's her mentor. And she said, my husband will. When the husband got there, and the father arranges this. The husband, a few years earlier, had the same surgery he's about to face. He's about the same age as the man in the hospital. And both the men have honest conversations about their regrets in life, their fears over surgery. As only the father would do, it's in that conversation that the gentleman begins to explain the beauty of Christ and his grace. And the Lord opens the gentleman's eyes. And he experiences Christ as his own. And if you think that's good, it gets better. Uh, the, the couple uh, who had been in their lives invited them to come to a Bible study with them. Bible studies were held at the church. They went to the church. So here is a couple sitting there at the church beside the other couple who's been mentoring them. And they're sitting with other couples and individuals. And everybody else doesn't know their backstory. But here's the whole thing. Everybody there at that gathering at that time are all Mephibosheth. Every one of us are individuals who have been crippled by the fall. Crippled spiritually by the fall of Adam. And has just trans transcended and covered us so that when we gather together with others who are believers in Christ, we are all Mephibosheth who will take our crippled lives and put them under the tablecloth of the king who has enough grace to extend over all of us regardless of our backstories. We're there because of the king's grace. Now, how amazing is that? Oh, that he would humble himself, sacrifice himself, choose us and cover us as his own, and let us sit at his table. What an amazing king. What grace. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with me. Thank you that you persist in loving me. And I know, Father, it is one-sided when compared to my expression of love in return. But I thank you and love you that your grace is so remarkable. We thank you as gathered brothers and sisters, as gathered group of Mephibosheths, that you allow us in your presence and you give us not only the joy of the fellowship with you, but to feast at your table of all that you provide, that we are heirs of your riches, that our identity is yours. Father, as we continue in worship now, Lord, let us marvel at that as we take the Lord's Supper. Let us marvel and praise you for that as we sing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Mark Beckton at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.